Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is uh, Friday afternoon, Friday evening. It's time for what we like to call the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio, which means we need someone to who can converse brightly. I know no one better than my guest tonight. Uh, he has been the host of innumerable shows on radio and television. He was the executive director, producer, executive producer of this show once upon a time. Got it started, really. Uh, we love having him on here when he has a moment, which is, it's hard to get him. He's a busy man. Jamie West joins us. Jamie, how are you tonight? Scott, I'm doing great. And uh, you know what? I think, how many people turned you down before you got to me? 417. It was <laughs> National Truth and Reconciliation Day. They all said, no, can't do it. Excellent. So I've come up, I've come up then on the list. That's good. My The standings are improving. I, I think that's cool. <laughs> you are, uh, yes, you, your rankings, your world rankings are rising. Now, you know what, let me, let me, I mentioned National Truth and Reconciliation as I was coming on here, and let, let's dive into that. I mean, this is a heavy one right off the bat, but do, do you think that having a day achieves anything, or is it just a chance for a lot of people to feel better about themselves, but nothing really is happening? Or do you think something really is happening as a result of having this day? Well, I think you got to. I think you've got to start somewhere, and um, I think we have to keep our keep our expectations tempered. Um, you know, this, this is a this is a pretty new thing. I think for a lot of Canadians, it, myself included, uh, up until last summer, I wasn't all that dialed in um, to truth and reconciliation of you know Canada's first peoples. I just wasn't, and and frankly. You know, they didn't teach us a lot about it in school coming up. I mean, you and I could have a very lengthy discussion about why we don't teach more history in school and, you know, clearly the relevance of it and the importance of it, I believe, is uh, somehow being overlooked by the education system. But that's another conversation. To get back to your uh, question, I think we have to start somewhere, uh, and I think Today, as I walked around, I saw a lot of people involved. I saw a lot of orange shirts. I saw a lot of, uh, I saw a lot of ceremony on television. I saw a lot of conversation going on uh, with Indigenous people. And I saw an effort by Indigenous people to um, not just be angry about what happened uh, with the residential schools, but to actually, de- you know, deliver some some real history, some understanding uh, to, to teach people what it was like, um, which is more than I can say for the churches that committed the genocidal atrocities on these people. So I think you begin somewhere and you keep it going. It's like anything where there's a commemorative day. When it's new, it takes a little time to get going. But based on what I saw and heard today, I think we've got some pretty good traction. Well, uh, let me let me add one thing to something you just said, because you refer to the churches, you left out half of the culpable party, which is also the federal government. Yes, you're quite which is which that. is every bit as guilty as the churches here. And yet it's so interesting. And I'm I'm not taking a shot at you for saying this. It's so interesting that we have so many people within levels of government now who have pointed the finger directly at the churches while basically trying to take any blame away from the government's role in this, which was equal. Well, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was the, you know, the prime minister of Canada, Johnny McDonald, who, you know, basically said, go and beat the Indian out of these kids. And that was, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that was the essence of the of the Indian Act. 
and, and, and where he stood and how he felt about it. He wasn't the only one that felt that way. He was a politician, for crying out loud. He, he must have had some groundswell of, of, of feeling about that to, to go forward. That was the common that was the common view at the time, right up until look, we had the white paper delivered under our current prime minister's father back in the seventies. Right. It was so That's it's right. not like it was even just one prime minister. This was this exactly. was the this was there for a long time. And yet, as I say, like look, I I don't want to get into I don't know that today is supposed to be about finger pointing, but this tends to happen is that the I think the church has taken a pounding on this one, the Catholic Church, and the pounding that is taken. I mean, a lot of the pounding it's taken, it warranted. But somehow there are people in the government who have pivoted off of this and tried to make it all about that. And this was a an official government position. Oh yeah, it's that's that's a really important point you're making, and it and it has to be it has to be made uh, absolutely equally. If we're gonna, you're right. If we're gonna point the finger at the churches. Um, and the, le- the leadership of the church, then we've got to we've got to do the same thing with the government. In fact, I should have started there. Quite frankly, I'm glad that you that you brought it up. Um, and you know, the thing the thing is, we can we can sit and we can argue about who took responsibility for what and, and in what time frame. And you know, the Catholic Church is taking a, a, an extra hit because it's taken them this long to kind of take responsibility. But that's you know that's their history. They don't take responsibility for much of anything. They they brush stuff under the carpet. They don't take responsibility for priests that that molest children. Uh, historically, there's all kinds of of problems there. But if but if we want to just talk about this particular thing, all we have to do really is just is just own that it was a terrible thing that was committed against these human beings. That it happened in our country that it's a shame, a national shame, and that we've learned, we are learning from it and we do commit to doing, to doing better. And, and I don't know how much more we can do about it. I, you know, I keep hearing, I keep hearing that things like the Pope being criticized, you know, when he visited here and, and he made his apology and then he got on the plane and he apologized again on the way over and said, oh, you know what, I should have said this while I was there. I don't know how much more he can do other than opening the purse strings of the church, which he should do as well. Uh, the richest entity on the planet should open the purse strings and, and definitely throw some money at this. There's no question about that in my mind. But if we're just talking about owning it and apologizing for it, I don't know how much more apology can be delivered. I, I get tired of that after a while. For me, it's like, let's change the way we think about our first peoples in this country, let's help them with the real problems like drinking water. How can, how can there be, how can there be places in Canada that don't have clean drinking water? You know, that, that's, that's clearly something where we say, yeah, that's a, that's a a priority. That's something we should be doing. And yet it's not been done. And I'm not, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see a whole lot of construction going on that's solving this problem now, even though we've been talking about this for a long time. So what reason should any of us have to believe this is something that is going to ever get fixed? Well, clearly there, you know, there isn't, um, you know, show me the clean drinking water and then I'll say, I guess it's been fixed, but, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what the holdup is. I don't, I don't understand Money, and I think that's part of the problem. I don't think most Canadians have a clue uh, why these things occur. Um, 
I think there are problems within the indigenous communities themselves as well. Like let's, let's not be, look, let's not be naive about that. There's, you know, they, they govern uh, themselves uh, in, in ways that aren't exactly a fitting at all times with a strong moral compass, no different than outside the indigenous communities. They're not perfect either in terms of how they, uh, govern uh, themselves in their in their own communities within their own culture. And well, there's a challenge there, right? There, I mean, there's a big challenge there, there, which is that you have, in many cases, many of these communities say, we are independent, therefore we do not want federal government or any kind of outside government oversight. Right. So we want, the, we want you to provide for us or help us, which, you know, that's fine. And many of them, if this would be fine. You would give the money, the thing would get built. But if there can be no oversight, what happens if it doesn't get done? And you can't then, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing. I don't know that that should stop anything from happening, but I agree with you that there are complications here when you, when the, when there is supposed to be a clear independence between what the people giving the money can do afterwards and what the money is going to go towards. Yeah, and I think that there's, again, this is, you know, I'm not an expert, but I'm, I go back to the, I go back to the Caledonia occupation days in 2006, and I lived there then, and I did hours and hours of talk radio on CHML about what was going on, and and I was threatened, my life was threatened, and and I went down to the barricades and I met with people who were surprised that I showed up at the barricades. You know, I was threatened by one guy, and he. I went down to meet him on a Friday night, and he and he, I, he said, "I'm surprised you showed up." He said, "Well, do you want to go and have a cup of coffee over here at Hortons, and we'll talk about it?" And and we did, and and the conversation was much more candid than the political one between a talk show host and a politically charged representative of the Haudenosaunee. It was just two guys talking, one with one with an indigenous background and one without, and. It was actually quite amazing to see what could happen uh, over a cup of coffee. What I'm driving at is that a lot of uh, Indigenous people are under a lot of pressure politically to tow their own political line or the, the political line that somebody wants them to tow. And there's a lot of people who probably would like to speak up and tell some other truth. You know, there's there's more than one truth out there um, on big issues like this. And I'm sure there are some that would like to step forward and, and tell more truth. But it's not politically expedient to do that in a lot of cases. And and my point is, wouldn't it be nice if the the indigenous leaders, uh, many of whom are, are, are excellent people, quality, quality people, could encourage more voices like theirs to stand up and come forward and have a real uh, dialogue uh, that's less based on the politics of the day and more based on true history and true needs in the present time. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll take another issue. I, th- there's a lot, there's more opinions out there. I don't know that there's more than one truth, but there's more opinions out there. Everyone's got an opinion on this. And, and, and that's, you know, like you, you talk about the history. 
And the, and earlier on, you said, I don't know why we, you know, we struggle in this country with to, to in schools to teach history. Well, I, I got two reasons why I believe that's the case. One of them is because we don't necessarily, at least when I went to school, it wasn't made interesting and relevant. So we never really got when I was in grade nine or 10, I never really got why I had to learn about this stuff because it had no application to me. It was not made relevant. And two, clearly these days we can't agree on what that history is. So now we're just saying, well, you have your history. I have my history. We'll teach our own history. Well, that's not helping anyone either. That, that's what's, that's how we get to these places by everyone having their own history or their own truth and not seeing that there is a truth and a lot of opinions and varieties and variations. Well, I'll agree with you on that. You make a really good point about how teachers uh, can make a big difference um, when it comes to things, particularly like history. If you've got a, if, if you've got a passionate uh, teacher who's into it and can create some context and make it interesting, then history be, becomes relevant because they show you the context and they show you the relevancy. But you're absolutely right. Some some don't. Um, you're just learning and, dates and who cares? Right. Well, that's that, that's right. But it, it doesn't take absolutely it doesn't take away from what I believe is a critical need, maybe now more than ever, maybe then even when you and I were in school, to get it going uh, again, because it also, it, with the right teacher, and maybe audition the history teachers, I don't know, but you, it, it creates an opportunity for kids to learn much better critical thinking, which to me is maybe the most important thing that kids come out of formal education with. Uh, hopefully, is is an ability to think critically and ask questions. So what I'm getting at is if we were in a history class with an interesting teacher giving us context and everything, that teacher theoretically should be saying to them, but don't take my word for it. Go here, read this, go there, read that, read opposing views on this, and you can uh -huh. find that here. Uh, Hand out yes. lists of, of, of opposing points of view and opinion and say to the class, I want you to do an essay on both sides. I want you to argue this issue from both sides and give me a thousand words for, you know, 30% of your mark or whatever. Just an idea. No, I look, Jamie, I have spoken in classes before talking about working in the media world. And, and you know, one of the things that, that we get accused of all the time is being biased. Every, every person who works in the media gets accused of being biased. Mm -hmm. And my question is always this, it, and I have people in a classroom, they're sit, the kids are sitting in a classroom. I say, okay, close your eyes right now, every one of you, and raise your hand. If I want you to tell me what is the most dominant feature of this room you're sitting in right now. And I make them write something down. What it, when if you were describing this room, what is the one thing that is the dominant feature of this room? <laughs> and you want to know something? Every well, not everybody, but there are many different answers. Some say, well, the desks. Some say the walls. Some say a flags. Whatever. The point yeah. is, all of them are accurate. All of them, from their perspective, are telling truth as they saw it. Now, are they're all true? Yeah. Uh, is it the most dominant feature? Maybe there is a true answer, but it's perspective. It's your perception. And that's one thing we don't do is all of these stories. So the stories from the, the, the white people who came over, you know what, their history, that's their perception. Are they lying? I don't think they're necessarily lying. That was how they saw it. But can that's we take I mean the other side? Truth. Yeah. Right. But it doesn't mean, and this is where it gets complicated. What we tend to do is we say either we're going to follow all of this one or then, well, no, we don't agree with that anymore. So we're going to dump that. Now we're going to follow all of this one. And it's like, no, no. 
they can all exist. It paints a picture when you look at all the different sides of this thing. That's how you find a history that matters, as opposed to just picking whose side you're going to like, and then you never get the real truth. Well, this is it, and and and, and a big part of it is um, an ability to teach young people <laughs> how to uh, disagree without being disagreeable. So you can look at another person's Great point. perception or perspective or opinion, as you're pointing out. We should be teaching kids to say, you know what? You, ha- you, you need to accept that that's how that person perceives it. Um, you may perceive it differently, but that's how they, they perceive it. So, and it doesn't make them necessarily a bad person for having right. a different perception. I think that's right? a, absolutely that, and I mean that's what. If there's a time <laughs> for that to be exercised and taught in school, my goodness, now is the time. I would argue because we are the most polarized. If you're not with me or against me, if you yes. don't believe in this, I hate yes. you. I hate you. Come on, you know we need. But that's to- what today. To me, that's what today should be about. I don't believe that because we're having National Truth and Reconciliation Day, that it means we have to immediately dump or villainize every person who was one of the people who came to this land once upon a time. They came with their perspective. Now, some of the things they did were bad, uh, unquestionably. No, no one's saying otherwise, especially in our modern sensibility. But what today should be is not just to say immediately, okay, everything that was done was evil. I think what you do today is the day to listen to the other side and so we can bring it into the conversation and see how these two things work together and find a real history as opposed to just saying evil, good, therefore we've decided. You need to blend all the stories because I'll tell you something, I'm pretty sure that all the people who came were not evil and didn't have evil intentions. At least they didn't think they had evil intentions. And I'm pretty sure that, n- that the indigenous people who were here didn't have all evil intentions. Right there, there were you can you can look well, at no. the intentions and you can say here's how we saw things here's why things happened as they happened, I think. Yeah, the look here. It's important. I want to make this. I, I want to say this because I I think it's important in the context of of uh, the to the meaning of today and the and the history of the the residential schools and so on and so forth. The problem. I, I agree with everything you're saying. The problem with the, hit, the 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 real history that took place here, you and I both agreed the federal government and the churches together created this environment. Um, and what I'm going to say about that is the problem with with creating those types of environments is you you give license to to psychopathic uh, human beings, whether they're wearing a collar or not to commit atrocities on other human beings. That's the problem with those types of, uh, of policies. I'm not saying that every person who ever worked in a residential school was evil or abused children, but it sure gave, it sure created open season for those uh-huh. that lean that way naturally is what I'm trying to say. I, and I agree with you. And, and to get this, and again, we got to run, but I, I think you have to now listen. What we're doing finally is we're listening to the other side as well to get the other view of this from what we all learned in history class, which is good. I don't mm-hmm. think that you necessarily though throw out the first part either. You have to be able to see how these things came to be and what was yeah. the thinking behind how these things came to be and then it wasn't necessarily all evil intent that led these things to come to be 
And if you dump some of this stuff or don't listen in the first place, as we haven't, you don't have the picture. You don't have the real history. I know we got to run, but the, the old saying, uh, the, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I have a, I have a feeling that that may have been, you know, kind sure. of the genesis of this whole thing that turned into this genocidal horror show. I think, you know, it, we have to listen to both. We haven't done a good side, a good job listening to both sides. I don't know that the answer to that is to listen to only one side or only the other. The whole picture will tell the story. That's what we have to do. We have to be listening now to the one we haven't listened to while then melding it and figuring out how does that fit in with what the other side was. Again, I, I mean, it's, it's the only way we're going to learn how these things happen so they don't happen again. Jamie, as of Monday, we will be three weeks away from the municipal election. Are you in any way engaged at this point in the in the municipal election? A little more so than uh, the last couple. Yeah. Okay. I am. Are you okay? Because I've you're you're one of the unusual ones. Because I've been talking to people, and by and large, it is. It's been a giant yawn so far for a lot of people. I've been asking, I mean, I, I've asked a number of people in the last few days, even who's running in their ward and no idea. I, it just, it seems like something has not caught yet. The public's mm-hmm. interest. I don't know well, why. I'm out here Fatigue? in, I'm out here in Ancaster and, and there's, I, I was actually surprised this week to see as many signs go up as, as did. Cause I thought signs were falling out of fashion, um, with elections because of, you know, the, the environment and, you know, the, the sort of the, uh, aesthetic pollution they create, but they're, they're out there. Um, yeah, somebody at one point, this term of council, I think actually suggested we have a consider banning election signs, if I recall correctly, but I think it's a um, good idea. <laughs> I, well, I yes and no. It's a good idea. Yes and no. I'll tell you, like in Ancaster, driving through Ancaster the other day, I, because there's no incumbent and there's about 11 people running yeah. without signs, I don't think anyone would know anything about anyone who is up for election. I don't. I, I truly don't. As it stands right now, this is one of the wards where I look and I think, I'm not sure that the person who, and I'm not saying who the person should be, I'm not sure that the person who should be elected, who might be the most qualified or whatever else, is going to be because no one knows any of these people. So signs may be the only thing that people see. Well, uh, you know what? I, I might have I might have bought into that thinking, you know, before we became so social media savvy and website savvy and all of that. But nowadays you just punch into Google, you know, Ancaster municipal election and, and they all they all come up. Um, if you look for that. If you go looking for that, that's my point. The people who want to know about their candidates will find out about their candidates. I don't so doubt that. Are you that. saying that if I drive by a sign and it says Joe Blow on it, that, that oh, I'll say, oh, Joe Blow. Okay, I'll Google Joe Blow and see. Maybe, what maybe, okay. maybe. Yeah. I Because I just, as I say, like, I, I agree with you. If you want to find out about the people who are running, you can find out. I'm not suggesting they don't have good websites. I don't know all of them, but... But I think that an awful lot of people, without signs, the election is just out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know what we can do about this because it's supposed to be a democracy. But it's it's concerning to me when there's eleven or twelve candidates in in a ward um, because it's gonna it's going to water down. You know, the the vote splitting is going to be somewhat more significant, and that bothers me. Um, 
because when you got when you have a field like that, inevitably you always have a crackpot or two in the mix um, who shouldn't be there or shouldn't even be given any consideration because they're just they're just tin hat wearing nut jobs. Let's be honest. Um, you know, people don't like to say that, but because it's they stand up for democracy, and I'm a big believer in democracy to to a point. But I, you know, we also deserve to have in a democracy effective, intelligent leadership. Um, and and that's where we expect that someone is going to have to go and do their own research. And I'm I and again, true. I'm okay with that. But I, I agree with your point. It becomes much more challenging when there are 12 people for you to do all the research that needs to be done to find out who is who. That's when I say, I don't know that the most qualified person in any number of a number of wards that have a ton of people and not a lot of name recognition, I don't know if the best person is going to get elected because I don't know that people are going to make the effort, all of them, to go and look up 12 or 13 people and read all about them. And you're making and you're making a great point because it is an effort. The, you know, you use the right word there. It does take an effort, and and I think that again we're we're showing over and over and over again that we're not willing to make the effort. We're willing to complain like crazy when the potholes on our street don't get filled and n- nobody gets our cats out of the trees, but we're not willing to put in a little bit of effort to learn about the candidates, what they stand for. Uh, you you know. And that's a that's a big problem. And and at the municipal level, um, the, the municipal level is is the level of government that affects us the most. Yes. And yet, it's the one that people pay the least amount of attention to. That's that's crazy. You know, people uh, I, have, I, have I, got I, to get with it. I I agree with you. In fact, here's something that I mean, you may agree, you may disagree, uh, because I know that you know for the last term of council, that everyone's hated council and says councillors are you got to get the bums out and all the rest listen i'm of the opinion that we pay our politicians inversely to how they should be paid i believe that municipal that city councillors and mayor should be the highest paid politicians i sincerely do and the federal ones least because the municipal ones actually do per capita per person do the most amount of work because they're constantly they, they're getting all the calls. They have to do all the stuff. If you're a federal, if you're a backbencher in the federal government, not only does who, and I, it's not this party. I don't mean this government. I mean, any government by any stripe, you, your leader is making, or the cabinet making all the decisions. You're just there as a vote. That's all. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I would, I would say, flip it around. The federal politicians that are getting paid 200 grand a year, give that to the local people and give the federal ones, the 90,000 or whatever it is. Um, and yet you're right. We don't pay nearly as much attention to the people who are doing all this stuff in the city. Yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real problem. And um, I'm encouraged in, in this election by some of the experience that's coming in to vie for positions. Um, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing that Andrea is in the, in the race for mayor. Um, I don't, uh, I believe that, I don't know Keenan Loomis well at all, um, but I, you know, I've had a lot of dealings with Andrea over the years as a media person, and going back to the days of action when the, you know, when they were marching through the streets here during the Harris government, and I think she was with the District Labor Council at that time. Um, she's a quality person, and you know, it's good that she's that she's running for mayor, and and I'm happy to say that I hope she becomes the mayor. 
um, because she's got all those connections at Queens Park. And people say, well, you know, they're always fighting with her and, you know, shooting her down and stuff. But that's that's the political discourse that goes on inside the legislature. But these people don't leave and hate each other after the, the debates and the stuff that goes on, the, sh- the show that goes on inside the legislature. And she's got the experience to know how to make the right pitches to get Hamilton the right things. Now, I'm not on her campaign. I don't work for a campaign. She's not paying me to say these things. It's just, I'm just citizen Jamie West here. But, um, and Keenan Loomis might have great ideas too. I don't know. Um, but what, but it's, but McMeekin's another one. People say, McMeekin, oh my goodness, how many retreads are we going to put on McMeekin? But Ted's another one of those guys who's pretty even keeled, um, temperament wise, uh, and lots of experience. And I don't see that being a, a, a bad thing around a council table that's going to have some new faces. I, so, you know, it's funny. Politics is the one profession, I think, maybe someone else will throw one at me that I'm not thinking of. Politics <laughs> is basically the one profession where we, in a lot of cases say not having any experience is a benefit. And I'm not sure that's true. And I, and I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should always be only bringing back people who have been in politics before you eventually get to a point where no one has had the experience and they all retire and then you're stuck. I don't mean that. But to the idea that we would want a council of 16 people, 15 councillors and a mayor, none of whom have any political experience, would, would honestly would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. We, it, they'd figure it out eventually, but in the first year or two, it would be a disaster. Right. You, and guess whose expense their education? Always. On. Always. Always. It, yeah, um, you don't want nobody with any experience on there. I'm not, I, and again, I'm not lobbying for any particular. You're not hearing me name anybody. I'm just saying I don't think we want 16 neophytes sitting there going, "Oh, uh, what do we do? What do we do?" You, no, you need want, someone want, who knows what they're doing. I want candidates who, I want candidates who have, you know, had leadership roles either in their their work lives uh, or their community lives with with community organizations, but some kind of leadership roles, not just, you know, and, and it's fair, the, you know, the guy that works, that works uh, a shift and punches the, the card can run if he wants, but I don't want him representing me at council. I want somebody who's, who's led other, other groups who has been more involved in the community, not just somebody who wants to get in there and get their 15 minutes on the local cable access channel or in the spectator or on CHML to uh, shoot their mouth off about how crappy everything is. I don't know that we necessarily are better off if every single person has a clean slate. Clean slate sounds lovely, and and, and in a lot of cases it is, but not if it's at the absence of real-world experience that you can bring to the table. Yeah, right. And, but, and let's be clear, we're not talking about, <clears throat> when we talk about a clean slate, we're not talking about, uh, you know, scandals and, and things like that. Um, you know, we are, we, we're talking about needing to have some kind of relevant experience in your life as an adult that can transcend into the new role as a 
counselor who represents thousands of constituents. And that's important. I, I really don't think that anybody should just be able to put their name on the ballot. Um, I think there should be some criteria under which you uh, can register. Uh, and I think that way um, we would get more for our, our money and our efforts. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's that's an interesting one. Um, the, the the problem that we would have immediately is nailing down what the criteria is because I'm telling you, there are certain activist groups that will come up with a list of things that you have to have in order to get in there, and other activist groups will say the opposite. Like that, that forget the election. I mean, you're going to have the biggest fight ever just to get to that point. I mean, and and the other thing, by the way, with what we're talking about in this election is a, a really a lot, it seems, of the organized groups seem to be looking for people who are clean slate. And, you know, I don't, I, I'm not, as I say, I don't mind people with who don't have political electoral experience getting into office. I'm not opposed to that by any stretch. But it seems that the only people, and this happens with any group, really, the only people that they want are the clean slate people who happen to subscribe to their political agenda. We don't want someone with an agenda that's come in before. Like this thing is, these elections, and you're talking about it. I mean, we're 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 into such an angry, um, divisive thing now that we are. That you know what you you may have a clean slate, but it's not clean enough because you have something in your background that doesn't align with what I believe. So therefore, it's not really a clean slate. You're a danger. But my person who's got a clean slate has some background stuff, but I agree with it. So they're fine. They're exactly the right person to come in. Yeah. So there, you know, you're illustrating the the polarization that that is so dominant, and you know, mix in the complete lack of. Uh, or unwillingness to, to give benefits of the doubt or to trust or worse, uh, you know, throw out every kind of conspiracy theory about, you know, the guy in, I'm just being theoretical, Ward 7, Ward 6, Ward 11. I mean, you know, the thing you hear over and over and over again, oh, so this guy's in that guy's back pocket. This guy's in, you know, labor's back pocket. This guy's in the developer's back pocket. Blah, 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 blah. As though... As though labor and developers and all those things are are evil, <laughs> you don't have you don't have those organizations in a city like Hamilton. You don't have those cranes in the air that we've been seeing. Like the the mentality of of some of these, as you point out, organized um, groups that want to special interest groups that want to run slates of candidates um it's it's nuts i i am amazed when i drive through this city i see all kinds of room for improvement but i also see a city that's growing and evolving in a positive way in spite of itself and that's and i'm hopeful that this next election just like every year we're hopeful that the leafs will do it Let's hope that, you know, after this election, we've got the right players on the team that can gel and score some goals. <laughs> well, and you know what, Jamie, there's one other thing. There's one other thing to your point, and, and you, you've led me into one other thing, and that is one of the things that we've heard a number of times is, you know, council was skirmishing a lot last last council, last term of council. Council didn't get along, and we need a council that's all going to, you know, 
get along and and be on the same page. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think we do want that. I don't think we do want 16 people who all agree just to push everything through. We want pushback. And when we don't want a rubber stamp council that just everybody is in alignment, no one has a disagreeing position on anything. That's not how democracy is supposed to work. We want people with different views on there. We don't want an entire council who's on the right. We don't want an entire council that's on the left. And if you're going to have those butting heads on certain issues, you're going to have some skirmishes. That's not a negative thing. That's a very healthy thing. Well, it, it, absolutely. I mean, again, it comes back to what we were talking about a couple segments ago when I said we have to be able to, be, to disagree without being disagreeable. The acerbic style of councillors like Terry Whitehead have no place on that city council. I mean, that that guy just made a a total ass of himself uh, in there. And, um, you know, there's no place for that. Uh, We need we need decorum. Uh, They should send all of the you know, everybody, all of these councillors, when they're first elected, should have to go and sit. Uh, in the public gallery in courts of law, criminal court, family court, civil court, and and learn from the decorum that is enforced in those buildings. Uh, because, uh, you know, there's reverence in there. And, and our city, our city uh, government and the seats of our city government should be uh, under the same kind of, um, you know, kind of the culture and rules, frankly. Yeah, I. Uh, but that you know doesn't what? mean we have to agree with each other. No, the, the the difference is I agree with you absolutely about decorum. But as I say, I've been hearing a lot about people say, "Well, you know, we need to have this so we're not always like going at it. We need to have a little more agreement or a little more simpatico, whatever the word." It's like, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want a a I don't want a city council that is all in agreement on everything. And if you, you if you were to find a bunch, if we have 14 of the 16 who all agree on everything, we've got a problem with our city council. We need the ability to have other people challenge positions and fight back against positions and do it passionately at times and even do it at times to the point where other people might get angry about it. That's, that is not unhealthy. Yeah, that's not unhealthy though. I'm, I'm arguing that they, that people need to do that intelligently and, and with, with evidence and solid fact, fact-based information to present the council before mm. the vote is called. That's all. A lot, of, a lot of times people shoot emotionally from the lip, and that doesn't serve the constituents of that ward properly on, on, that, on that particular issue, whatever it happens to be that day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Jamie West back in. A um, well, I, I don't even know how to introduce Jamie properly because he does everything. He's been everywhere. He's done every show. Uh, everybody knows Jamie West. He's just like Hamilton's media magnate. How's that? <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, we're we're morphing into podcasting now at West Pro Media. Um, there'll be some new material. I've got the Jamie West podcast. And I've got a new, uh, a really exciting new project, Scott, that maybe we can talk about down the road. Um, it's called Divorcecom, and it's a communications company developed to help people uh, who are going through separation and divorce do it in a way that's non-conflictual. Um, that sounds through, smart. Yeah, through alternative dispute resolution. 
and uh, I'm working with a, a number of um, lawyers and experts uh, with a, a podcast called Divorce Solutions, and people can check that out wherever they get the podcasts. And maybe down the road we can talk a little bit more. Absolutely, about what absolutely. Divorce.com is, and uh, but people can look it up if they're interested. Now, anyway, uh, absolutely. For the plug. All right, let us get to this. Uh, speaking of court, a great segue. You didn't even know this was coming up, but great segue. <laughs> there is a court case looming because a federal judge has refused to toss out an accusation that Ed Sheeran ripped off Marvin Gaye. That when Ed Sheeran wrote Thinking Out Loud that he stole from Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Someone has put this together. They've merged the two into one song. When you hear that, do you think, oh my goodness. That is just absolutely ripped off. Or do you think it's a chord progression and chord progressions are going to happen in music and what's the big deal? So, um, you know, the story a little bit, it reminds me of the old George Harrison story about my sweet Lord and she's so fine. Um, I'm leaning in the direction of chord progression, coincidentality. Is that a word? No. You're- it is now. <laughs> <coughs> so... So here's the, uh, yeah, no, I don't, you know what? I don't, I don't think Ed Sheeran, I don't think Ed Sheeran needs to rip anybody off at this stage of his career, does he? So, you know, I think it's just a, I think it's just a coincidental chord progression. I mean, there's only so many that's the, you can do these songs, right? I mean, what that's, do you think? that's the thing. No, no, that's the thing. So I remember back when, now you point to another one. I remember that, um, uh, oh, what's his name with Ghostbusters, Ray Parker Jr. Uh, I think he lost a case, didn't he, for taking something from Huey Lewis in the news? Um, yeah, I vaguely remember that. And I think you're right, he did lose. And and at the same time, when I hear this one, it's not the same tune, but you're right. I, I look at these and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if this becomes a thing, if let's say that, that Ed Sheeran was to lose to the estate of Marvin Gaye, are we not going to have a million of these? Because there is only a certain number of possible chord progressions. And when you've had now, how many songs have been written in the history of the world? Billions. At at, at a certain point, you're inevitably, there's going to be some that repeat. No, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's funny you're, you're bringing this topic up because early today I was, I was at home and I was, I had uh, some tunes on listening with a friend and my friend said, the song that was being played was called Dragon Attack by Queen. It's from their album, The Game. And it's, you know, it's not a really well-known song. It wasn't, you know, one of the biggest hits off the album. But she was listening to the song, and, and she was confusing it with Billy Squire's song, The Stroke. Ah. Because, it's the, because it sounded the same. The chord progression was the same, and, and the rhythm was the same. And I thought, yeah, it, does. it really does sound like that. And I thought, I don't remember Queen and Billy Squire getting into a Donnybrook over uh, Dragon Attack, or, or I mean, the Stroke uh, uh, later on. I guess uh, the Stroke came long after Dragon Attack. But you, you get my point. I mean, yeah, there, there is going to be some crisscrossing of of these chord progressions, and I think it's all about intent uh, at the end of the day. And and this just smells desperate to me. And, well, and there, I mean, see, yeah. there are other ones, and we've played them on the show before. We had a lawyer on a, a long time ago, an entertainment lawyer, a, an entertainment copyright lawyer, as it turns out. And there was a lawsuit because, a similar lawsuit, because um, Led Zeppelin was yeah. being sued by a group named Taurus. Yeah. 
for Stairway to Heaven. For Stairway to Heaven. Uh, or was it, wait a second, was it Taurus with the with the song Spirit or Spirit with the song Taurus? I don't know. Anyway, one or the know, other. But, yeah. No one had ever heard of them before. Um, and that one, I listened and I went, oh, ooh, ooh, okay, that, yeah, that, that one a sounds alike. That was and a that one they didn't win. Yeah. yeah. So how are you going to yeah. win this? But yeah, I, I, I don't know. know. I don't know how you write music today. I don't know how you write music today because inevitably there is someone who's done it before you to some degree in some way. Well, there's so much mixing and melding. I mean, look at what Elton John's been doing with Dua Lipa and, and, and other artists, you know? Um, and, and now uh, granted it's a little different because that's with the permission of the original artist putting cold, cold heart and rocket man together. That It's not the same thing. I understand, but, but it's, but, but everything, I think they're running out. Because I don't think anybody thought rock and roll, for example, rock and roll music or pop music uh, would have the lifespan it had to this point. You know, and most rock songs are based on a three or four chord progression. How many combinations can you come up with? You know? Well, that's so let's say you come up with a chord. So it's not even that you're, you're stealing the melody per se. You're stealing a chord progression, and how many how many chord progressions must you have for it now to be a copy? What if it's what if it's yeah. three chords in a row? Is three chords a progression that would be plagiarism, or must it be five, or can it be two? Like it it, it becomes this impossible thing. But again, I'm I'm thinking to myself, I'm Jamie. I'm not a musician. I've never written a song, and if I did, nobody would have wanted to listen to it anyway. <laughs> but. I can't imagine that you could write something in 2022 with the billions of songs that have been written and not have someone say, that sounds really like something I heard before. Because yeah. for me, the other part of it is that in my head, like you've, how many songs, take a wild guess. I mean, how many songs do you think you've heard in your lifetime? Oh. Two million? Maybe? Oh, uh, okay, sure. Yeah, I don't Let's know. say uh, two million. In your brain, somewhere like Velcro, it's held on to that somewhere. It could be way in the deepest recesses of your mind, and you go to write a song thinking, I woke up with this tune in my head. I think that's my tune. And really, it's something you heard years ago that has somehow popped up. I, I don't know how you do it. Yeah, look it. I mean, it's it, 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 come to, it comes down to, when you're getting litigious about these things, it comes down to intent, I think, and... Maybe, maybe, you know, did you intend to do it? No. Okay. But maybe there's still some sort of a, a financial, you know, penalty to pay for tripping on those chords and that progression at this particular time and, you know, upsetting the estate of Marvin Gaye at this particular time. And, you know, so that just becomes the cost of doing business. You know what's going to happen with this thing. I mean, just because the judge refused to throw it out doesn't mean that the case is going to go against Ed Sheeran, they'll settle it out and that'll be the end of it. You know, here, here's some money. Well, there's, there's one other thing, Jamie, there's one other thing here. And is it not possible? And again, I'm not letting someone off the hook or not, I'm not being naive, but is it not possible that someone considering again, the amount of music written over the years that someone could imagine without even hearing a tune that someone could imagine the same tune or somewhat the same tune? Oh, yeah. And I think there's already, you know, there's examples, I think, that already exist. I can't name them, but I, 
I, I have a music teacher that works with me try, trying to teach me guitar with the operative word being trying. Um, and he has shown me multiple times how uh, different chord progressions um, are, are, are the same, same song. So and it's funny because we're actually working on a Marvin Gaye song that everybody knows called Mercy, Mercy Me. And he's got, he started out teaching me the song using four, four, four particular chords. And because I was having trouble transitioning from one of the chords to the other, he changed the chords up and gave me four other distinctive chords. But when I play them, it's the same song. So I think that makes your point that it's, it's easy. It's certainly easy to, to do that. Now, Here, let me... sorry, if I wasn't singing Marvin Gaye's lyrics and stuff, then would it be my own song? <laughs> you know, I don't no. know. Jamie, I don't know if you were watching, if you've been watching the Blue Jays lately, but the other night, Aaron Judge for the New York Yankees ties the American League all-time record with Roger Maris for 61 home runs in a season. Does it in Toronto and hits the ball out to left field, just scorches it over the wall. But there are two guys, two grown men who brought their gloves to the game with the express purpose of maybe catching a ball. The ball, I think, hit both of their gloves and neither one of them held on to it. And some are saying this ball could be worth a million dollars, two million dollars, depending. Let's say you're one of those guys. Are you the kind of person who would look at this and get just totally wiped out because you go, I just lost two million bucks? Or would you be the kind of guy that would say, well, yeah, I lost a million bucks or two, but you know what? I didn't come, I didn't leave with anything less than I arrived with. Are you the, the glove half full or the glove half empty kind of guy? I think I'm the, I think I'm the glove half full guy. Didn't you say, cause I didn't see this, but I, I, I heard a little bit about this peripherally because I'm not a, a big baseball fan, but didn't you say that both, both guys with their gloves went for the ball and neither one of them caught it? Yes. Where did it end up? It fell off. It, they missed it. They bounced it around a bit, I guess, and then it fell into the Blue Jays' bullpen, so the Blue oh. Jay player then gave it to Aaron Judge, so he got the ball. Oh, that's justice, but, I think. Oh, well, it's, it, it, since it was Judge, that makes sense. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, it is. It is, and yet at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking of this going, okay, if I was one of them, do I leave the park just decimated? Like my, am I walking out of there feeling like my life just ended because I had a lottery ticket shooting towards me and I whiffed it or do I take a more, you know, whatever approach and say, yeah, I didn't get it, but they didn't take away my money. They didn't take away my house. I just don't have the extra thing. Some people would be one, some would be the other. Yeah, no, I would be, a, a, you asked me what I would be. I would be the guy who, who just, uh, you know, obviously I would shake my head back and forth and say to myself a couple of times, man, that close. If I'd only done that, if I had just caught that, that ball, but it didn't happen. And that's that. And I'm, and you're the next thing I would turn to is I would say, well, you know, that's how, that's how it goes. I didn't lose anything. I didn't gain anything, but I didn't lose anything. Kind of like I bought a lottery ticket tonight and I got, you know, four out of the five numbers or five out of the six numbers, but I didn't get the sixth one to win the big jackpot. And so I didn't get anything. Same thing. It's, you know, it was always a lottery. 
from the minute the guy hit the ball. And, you know, so now I wouldn't, I wouldn't be bent out of shape. I wouldn't be losing sleep over it. See, you're there. There's where you? we did. Oh, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be killing myself. I'd be so <laughs> upset be, because the, the difference is with the lottery ticket, it's entirely luck. There is, you have no control yeah. over that whatsoever. Yeah, and so if you got five of the six numbers, well, there was nothing, there was literally nothing I could have done to change that last number to get it. Yeah. To, <laughs> to have a ball hit my glove and me not catch it. That is in that, that's me not. So years ago, this is a, this is the story that made me think of this years ago when my son was probably, I don't know, 10. Uh, he was a pretty good little baseball player, and we went to we went down we drove down to Chicago to go to a game at Wrigley Field, and in batting practice, we're in the front row, and he's got his glove, and we're trying to shag fly balls, and twice a ball came right for him, but a rather rotund Chicagoite without his shirt on, who <laughs> um, who also had a glove, twice stuck out his glove, bumped my kid, but and went to catch the ball and hit his own glove and dropped it, missed it both times. And I just remember after the second time, my son, who again was like 10, oh, I couldn't wow. believe that he had the guys turned to him and goes, if you're not going to catch it, can I? <laughs> That's great. That is great. That is great. And I mean, I'm thinking, you know, if you're going to take a glove, if, if you are going to, as an adult, not as a kid, if you're an adult and you're going to take a glove to a game and the ball comes to you, you'd better darn well catch it. And if you don't, I think you have every right to beat yourself up. Well, absolutely. I want to know one more thing. I know you're going to run, but I want to know one more thing. Who in their right mind, like, pays thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars still for, for, for baseballs that are, that, that are hit like that? Is there still, that's still going on? Like, you got to... Well, I'll tell you why with this one. And I see, I'm not, we'll get back to the price in just a second. I mean, part of the reason for this one is there are a lot of people, whether it's, well, it's not accurate. I mean, the home run record for the major leagues is 73. So technically you got to get another 12 before you tie the record. But there's a lot of people now saying, yeah, but Aaron Judge is the guy who's tied the non-syringe record. Oh, that he's right, okay. that this is the legit record. No, let's take out all the guys who were taking stuff, and this is the the clean, legitimate Roger Maris equaling record. Now that said, I'm with you that I'm not entirely sure how much this really would be worth because if he hits number sixty two tonight to beat the record, who wants sixty one? Right. Right. You better have sold, if you had caught that, you better have put it up for auction and sold it like within 13 minutes because I don't know. Otherwise, I mean, you know, you might've got 50 grand for it, I guess, or a hundred grand, which is still, you know, you walk up to me and hand me a hundred grand. I'm not going to say no to you, Jamie, if you want, but, uh, but it's not like, you know, the $5 million ball or something. But anyway, I just, I, 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 I. I would have, even if, even with it not being $5 million, I still would have been beating myself up if I dropped it. That's just, Well, then that's I'm going to pay for some therapy for you because I can't have you doing a rumination number on yourself like that. You're my friend. We've got to get you some help. Well, I haven't dropped one yet. That's the thing. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so a uh, last story, uh, four, three, four years ago, my wife and I and some friends went to California for a game. The Jays happened to be playing the Angels. And we got there early and I caught a foul ball in batting practice. So I took a picture of it and gave it to a little kid wearing a Blue Jays outfit after I took a picture because I didn't need it. 
And then in like the seventh or eighth pitch of the game, I caught another one in the game now. And my kid who's watching my, again, my son who's watching from home knew we were going to the Jays game. I'm about to text him to say caught a ball. And he texts me, goes, did I just see you on TV? And it was like, yep. The next pitch hit the seat behind me. I, and I stuck out my hand to catch it. And then I didn't have a glove. I wasn't one of those people, one of those adults who takes a glove. And it was coming like an absolute rocket. And we were, I, I stuck out my hand and then went, yeah, no, not doing that. That's a broken hand for sure. I could have had three in before the first inning was out. And it was like, so I haven't dropped one yet though. So, you know, I don't have to be beating myself up yet, but you know, that day could come. So Well, it could anyway, have been worse. You could have been looking for a dentist after two. Like, well... <laughs> All all the people with me, I will say for the record, if you look at the video and I still have it, all the people with me didn't stick their hand out to catch it. They all turtled. (laughs) So like I would have. Honestly, oh, by the way, you mentioned the Angels. Sorry, you mentioned the Angels. Yes. That just tweaked my memory. Um, Not a baseball fan, but anybody listening tonight should watch the Nolan Ryan documentary that's on Netflix. Oh, is it good? It's fantastic. It is just Facing Nolan Ryan. You don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy this documentary. It is a terrific story. Um, I think it's called "Hey Nolan" or "Facing you know, Nolan Ryan." That's right, and it'll co- it'll come up, and it's an absolutely terrific, terrific documentary. I want to ask you another Netflix thing. So, apparently, the Netflix doesn't give out viewership numbers per se, but apparently, the number one most viewed series or show or anything on Netflix right now is the Jeffrey Dahmer series. And I want to know, I'm still trying to figure this out. What is it about? I mean, it's a, I've watched a couple episodes. My wife and I are watching it. It is dark. It is, I mean, everyone knows about Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, he killed people and then ate parts of them. I mean, it was like, it's a horrendous true story. And yet it's the number one viewed thing apparently on Netflix. What is the fascination that we have with these kind of stories? Right. So, uh, full disclosure, I've seen the I've seen the whole thing. I, I just okay. Finished, You're ahead of us. Finished watching it this week. I'm not. I won't give anything away. I mean, the, well, the sto- people people die and he eats them. There's spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, the story's the story. You know, if you, it, it, you know, it's it's not fiction. <laughs> it happened. Um, but to your question, I, I think it's simply that we. Like a lot of these things, we want as human beings who are not psychopaths to try to make sense of of these things. Somehow we think uh, if we sit and we watch a documentary about Dahmer or we watch a a series like this that's based on, you know, somebody having dug through a bunch of files and presented a bunch of things that we didn't see in the media coverage back at the time that it happened in the late 80s. that we'll learn something that will somehow make it make sense in, in our minds. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, and I'm just speaking for myself. I watched it just hoping to come to some kind of logic about it. And and of course I didn't, I just, uh, excuse me. I just, I looked at it from a number of different angles. I looked at it from the sociological angle. I looked at it from the, you know, the biological, chemical, you know, genetic angle. And I still just wasn't able to make any sense of it at all. And I think that what I came away from it with 
<laughs> excuse me again, as, as I did in the, when the story broke itself was some people are just born bad <laughs> and some people are just, they just turn out the way they do for reasons that are just not able to be explained. But see, I think that you, we watch stuff like that. See, I, I wonder about that, and I, you may be exactly right. I, I mean, part of me, and maybe this is just me being cynical, part of me doesn't give that amount of credit to why it's it's the same reason we slow down to watch a car accident as we drive by. I don't know that we're, I think for a lot of people, they're not trying to understand how the accident happened. They're just looking because it was an accident. I just, I think there is a voyeuristic thing about this that I, as I say, I'm not pointing fingers because my wife and I are watching this. So I'm not saying, oh, you're bad for watching it. I, I, I just, it's a fascinating thing to me that everybody says, I can tell you this, Jamie, it, working in the news business, as you have, everybody says, why don't you, you always cover bad news. Everything's bad news. We want good news stories. And then what do people watch then? Nobody's, I mean, yeah, some people are watching Hallmark Christmas movies, but this is the number one Netflix thing. They, they're saying they want good news, but their actions are saying something the complete opposite. Oh, listen, I think you're, and I think you're right about the voyeuristic thing. I think you're right about the, you know, the analogy of watching car racing to watch the cars crash fits the bill perfectly here. I think, and, and I'll include myself in this one. I, look, I watched the series to, say, to see how bad was this guy? Like, you know, how really, how, how bad was he? I wanted to kind of get in there uh, safely and see the level of depravity that this guy, uh, you know, put upon these people. Not because I enjoyed what happened to those people, but just because I'm a curious human being. And, you know, fr frankly, uh, you know, I came away a little dep <laughs> depressed from watching it and, and at times I was very, I was squeamish. Uh, yeah. And, and look, human being would be, you know? there's a whole section on Netflix of these, like I would argue, and I haven't counted, but on Netflix Canada, and I haven't looked at the rest of the world, I would bet you there are more crime shows than anything else. Probably by a long shot. The true crime stuff, the series stuff, the foreign stuff. My wife and I, a few years ago, got in this rabbit hole of brooding Icelandic and Norwegian crime dramas with <laughs> subtitles that I, you know, but there's more crime stuff and they're only putting on there what they know people are going to watch. Right. So there's yeah. there, clearly yeah. the audience is, we want this stuff. I just, I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what the, what the fascination is. And I know people have said, well, it's because they would never do this. And so it's seeing the secret dark side of themselves. Maybe, but I don't even think the dark side of themselves. I don't think that 99.99999% of people, even in the dark side of themselves could become Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't. They could no, do I, bad I things. Agree, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, he, he, this guy, man, he, uh, he really took the cake. Didn't he? Like he really, he really did. Um, and yeah, I your believe point, uh, your point about all the crime stuff. Yes, there's, there is a preponderance of that stuff available to view on Netflix. Uh, absolutely. There is. And, and it does get, it does, it will affect you 
mentally if you just drown yourself in that in that stuff. That's why I I spend a lot of time watching King of Queens on Paramount now. Old old reruns of that you know light silly show because I just think Jerry Stiller is hilarious and I know it's light stuff but it makes me laugh. It's like watching old episodes of Seinfeld. It's the same thing. You got to get out of that darkness. You're like it's fine to watch it for a while, but then get the heck out of there and uh, lighten your brain up a bit. Oh no, uh, that on that point, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Because even after we went into this, as I say, this Scandinavian thing, who knew there was so much crime in Scandinavia? And also, who knew that in Scandinavia they never turn on lights when there's a crime that occurs? It's an amazing thing that they. <laughs> Some of these shows, I always find it hilarious. They walk in. CSI does the same thing. You walk into a room where a crime has been committed, and instead of just flicking on the light, you have to turn on your flashlight. <laughs> turn on the light. You'll see it better. Anyway, um, but no, same thing. After a certain while, you you just, you, the only response is, okay, we got to watch something else that's like lighthearted and fun and funny because the whole world can't really be this dark and criminal, can it? No. But it feels like it. It sometimes does. And, and by the way, if you're looking for a great Scandinavian uh, uh, a villain criminal, uh, the, the guy who plays the Swede in the series Hell on Wheels, I don't know if that's available still on Netflix or one of the services, Hell on Wheels, the Swede, one of the greatest villains of all time. Scandinavian. Huh. There you go. Well, it is. Um, Netflix has become the new YouTube in the sense that YouTube You've probably done this. I know I have. And it's cost me some very late nights where you start by, you go on YouTube because I think I got to look up this video about how to fix the, why is my light in my basement flickering? And I have to be able to fix this. And I'm not sure why. And within an hour, you're watching something on someone doing a cover version of some song. And then immediately (laughs) you're on to something else. And by the end, it's like a game of broken telephone. You're like, how did we get here? But it's four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> right? And that's what Netflix has become is now I, I went on there to watch, say, <laughs> Seinfeld or The Office or something. And suddenly, as I say, I'm watching closed caption shows from other parts of the world about, you know, crimes in the middle of a winter storm. Who knew how we got here? They I don't trap know. you. They trap you. It's what they want to do. They own us. You know, you're not wrong, though. You're not wrong. The algorithms, they, 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 they own us. There's... There's a reason that they would do well, and it's the same reason why I don't particularly love Facebook anymore, and I go on it seldom because the algorithm, I don't love it. I, I just I, I feel like I'm being played whenever I go on there, that I'm only seeing stuff that they want me to see or they think that I want to see, and it limits my worldview. Oh, absolutely. It took... <laughs> It took me a long time to figure that out. And again, uh, I think it's Netflix, The Social Dilemma. If you haven't seen that documentary about algorithms, check it out, you know? Yeah, I think anyone, this is, you know, we started or we were talking earlier on about politics and about people who, uh, you know, about issues that we we get so divided now and everything else. A lot of this has to do with the algorithms that we are being fed the stuff, and this is not a conspiracy theory. This is fact. You, you you get stuff. Your Facebook page and my Facebook page are not the same thing. No, and anyone not. else listening, you get it based on what they think and through computer algorithms, what they think you're interested in, and 
it's just bizarre how your view of the world can be affected when you hear nothing but the same thing over and over and over again. Oh yeah, it's total indoctrination by algorithm. There's no no question about it. Again, that's why we have to spend more time with young people in school, teaching them history, teaching them context, and teaching them critical thinking so that they are not victims to the algorithms. I worry about our young people because of what we just talked about here. We got to run uh, very quickly. We're going to talk about it another time for sure, but your website, so people can look it up and, and your project, if they want to go and find it, where would they find it? Yeah, they can go to uh, divorcecom.ca. Uh, go and check it out there. Everything's there and explains it all. And uh, if you want to check out the podcast, it's uh, Divorce Solutions, available wherever you get your podcast. We're up to 26 episodes and uh, we're getting a lot of great feedback from it. So check that out. Divorce Solutions. The website's divorcecom.ca. And you can find out what I'm up to. Okay? Thank you. Jamie, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Fantastic job, as always. Always fun, Scott. Thanks so much for the invite. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.